All right, so I think we're going to go get started. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Joe D'Angelo. I'm from Veritas Technologies. Uh, and I want to welcome everyone to the session on uh, sort of a case study on a, a customer of ours who are migrating some of their critical workloads into AWS. But before we get into that, um, just by a show of hands, how many here first-time attendees at reInvent? Awesome. I'm going to leave my hand up, too, because this is the first time I've been here as well. And I'm really excited to be here to talk to you guys. I'm loving this conference thus far, so hopefully you guys will be uh, excited and, and really uh, engaged with uh, what we've got to discuss today. So in terms of what we're going to cover, um, we're going to begin a little bit with sort of the journey to the cloud for critical workloads. I think a lot of us maybe know how this movie has played out in the past with uh, virtualization and how tier one applications weren't the first thing that were targeted for that platform. And I think the cloud was similar. Um, but that said, the the economics of it and the scale really are, are driving a lot of the, the adoption for those critical applications. But there's some things that you have to still take into account. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the headwinds and, and some of the motivators for driving that, uh, that adoption. Um, we're going to do a little bit of a profile of the customer that, um, that came to us, uh, the challenges that they were facing, and how we were able to help them achieve that, uh, that type of scale and resiliency for this application. It just happens to be Oracle. I'm um, going to do a little bit of an overview of the project, exactly how it was engaged, the, the process we went through, and how we worked with them, uh, and really driving home what their challenges were and, and understanding at a, at, a, at a very low level. Um, and then we're going to move into the technology that really addresses those, those challenges. Um, it's a technology that we call InfoScale at Veritas, which some of you may have uh, understand as being our, our uh, Veritas uh, volume manager, Veritas file system, Veritas cluster server. Um, it's that suite of technologies. Um, and then from there, we'll go into some of those use cases uh, and then any uh, you know, Q&A that we may have. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll jump right in. So I want to begin by asking you this question. You know, what problem is the cloud solving for you? Is it a small problem? Is it a medium-sized problem? Is it a really big problem? Do, you, do the cloud doesn't have a standard definition? Everyone looks at it a little bit differently. So what's really important is to understand what are you going to be focusing on? Is the cloud just a simple storage target for you? Uh, are you looking at it for a supplemental platform? Are you looking at it for a disaster recovery target? Are you going to do lift and shift and move all of your workloads into the cloud? Or is it some sort of supplemental bursting for different, uh, different time periods? All of these use cases, all these considerations are, are perfectly valid, but also have a material impact on the technologies you choose and how you're able to take advantage of them. Um, and really going through that, Understanding that question first and, and, and defining or answering what that cloud, you know, that problem the cloud is solving for you is going to help you as you consider those, those tier one applications. So with all of the, the fervor around that, with all of the, the, the driving um, technologies, with all of the advantages that the cloud has to present, why isn't it that there are more applications? Why isn't it 100% adopted, right? And the truth be told is that there are a number of headwinds. There are a number of challenges to taking those critical workloads and moving them from, say, sort of an infrastructure as a service standpoint, um, not least of which is portability, right? There's a lot of platforms out there, a lot, of, a lot of customers I've had conversations with over the years that say, I would love to be able to move these applications into the public cloud, but especially AWS, but I don't know how to get them there. I feel like that, that first step is the hardest one. There's a number of uh, operational challenges, right? Now that you're adopting a whole new platform, how does that sort of management paradigm change, right? How do I then do something as simple as a backup or something as simple as uh, provisioning new resources? And then keeping in mind that there's still going to be a fair amount of on-premises uh, technology that I have to contend with as well. 
There's a number of legacy needs. There's those applications that just may never fit in the cloud, but you still have to maintain and manage those. Service agreements, just because you are adopting the public cloud doesn't necessarily disavow you, or you don't have to disavow those SLAs that you maintain, right? And in some cases, when you sort of relinquish that infrastructure control, you have to be much more focused on that workload or that application that's gonna be running there. So you have to sort of shift your energies and shift your emphasis. Compliance, orchestration, egress, right? Being able to move that data to and from, right? Being able to do that, uh, a degree of portability. These are all the challenges that have, I've had conversations with for a long time, especially this particular customer, that they were, that was what gave them sort of the apprehension about moving to the cloud. So, so we'll talk a little bit about the profile of this customer. So this is a very large global financial services entity. Um, they're based in Canada, um, nearly uh, you know, $25 billion worth of revenue. And they were a longtime customer of ours, right? So they've been using our technology on-prem uh, for their Unix estate for many years. And they, um, they standardized on Unix based on a, a, an RFQ that went out um, a number of years ago. And it was based on the experience that they had with that technology that they then moved into the Linux space and then subsequently looked at adopting the cloud as a, as a natural progression. Um, but wanted to make sure that they had consistency or they had parity with what they could achieve on-prem within the public cloud. Let me, real quick, show of hands, how many of you are in the process of moving a critical tier one application into AWS? All right, a few. How many would like to, but are maybe have some concerns around the, the performance, scale, resiliency? Yes? Okay, all right. Uh, these, the, again, the, these are all very, very common challenges that we face, common challenges that I hear about from, from, from not just this customer, from a number of customers. Um, and in many cases, a lot of times the, the, the adoption of, of AWS, the adoption of the cloud, uh, is driven by, in, in more often than not, a, um, a mandate from leadership, where you know, you, you're basically told, you're gonna be moving applications to the public cloud, now figure out how to make it work. Uh, so in many cases, it's, you know, I just want to scoop up what I do on-prem and make it work inside of the public cloud. Uh, and that's, again, it's a perfectly valid use case, um, but again, it, you have to be mindful of, you know, how that application is going to reform, how it's going to scale, how it's going to be resilient. So in terms of the problems that this particular customer faced and how we helped them solve them, it began with they wanted a standard HA and DR framework. There are a lot of technologies that address disaster recovery, and there's an innumerable number of technologies that address high availability, but they wanted something consistent. They wanted the ability to look at a single technology that could address that workload resiliency, both um, within the context of uh, a cloud region as well as between regions. Um, in this particular case, the workload, as I mentioned before, is an Oracle environment, and that's something that at Veritas we've really been keen on as a sort of our critical, I would say this most uh, prolific, uh, application that we support in terms of high availability and disaster recovery. Um, they were looking for predictable scale, right? Understanding again that they were they wanted to be focused on the application, not just the infrastructure that that was around it. Um, there is a, um, a a storage challenge that many customers have um, come to us and 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 sort of inquired about, and that is when you think about a single availability zone. One of the one of the challenges that you face is that storage is limited to within that AZ, meaning an EBS volume cannot span multiple availability zones. And when you're looking at performance and you're looking at those IO1 and, and, and those high performance ephemeral instant storage, all of those things that help drive the, the adoption of those critical workloads, how then do you ensure resiliency across availability zones? 
not just within a region, but within the context of those single, uh, within multiple availability zones. And that would be similar to what was happening on premises, right? Where you had a shared storage concept, right? Everybody understands that with the traditional SAN approach, right? You got a multiple nodes, can con communicate to a single uh, data source. In this case, that's problematic in the public cloud. Or in many cases, just um, sort of a, what we call sort of server SAN type approach, which also can be um, utilized on, on premises. And that's something with InfoScale, we're gonna talk a little bit about how we solve that problem specifically. Um, and then finally, again, extensible DR, right? Being able to move the, those workloads, not just between availability zones, but also across regions, um, whether it be in the Canadian region or within, within the US. So let's talk a little bit about the project and how we kind of went through it. Um, the first really, it began with, uh, in, as most projects do of this type, uh, again with the POC, right? They wanted to test this out on-prem in Linux. They wanted to understand how the technology worked. They wanted to get familiar with it. They wanted to get comfortable with it. Um, it was from there that then they moved it into the public cloud and leveraged um, the CloudFormation templates and AMIs that we have published in the Amazon Marketplace. So it gave them sort of a really uh, easy way to introduce the technology into their environment, sort of whether it be from a uh, management standpoint or just you know day-to-day -day operations, how that would be um, impacted. Um, from there, um, we engaged with a, a sort of a matrixed group of representatives from the customer. We had storage, we had database teams, we had product management. Um, this was their most critical application and the visibility in this went all the way up to the top. So we had to make sure that we had the commensurate response from Veritas. Um, and in doing so, we had daily conversations with this, with, with this customer from our, our uh, engineers, pro our product management, um, our executive leadership, everyone was involved, all hands on deck, because we wanted to make sure that they understood that we were as committed to their success as, as, uh, as they are. Um, which is really how, you know, that's, that's really the only way you can be successful in, this, in these types of endeavors. So I would say it's a very cooperative dynamic. One of the things that we were able to learn from a lot of what we did with this particular customer was sort of how this application sort of perform, but also some of the nuance of the technology, especially in AWS. Um, understanding that it's um, the parity. It's not as simple as just taking what you did on premises and you know, clicking a button and making it uh, available in the cloud. Um, there's uniqueness and, and variations there. And we learned a lot in the process. Um, they did and so did we. Uh, and uh, that uh, was uh, helped to sort of benefit other customers of ours that have uh, taken down the same path. So in terms of the, the lessons learned that we had from this particular uh, customer example, the first being, from a performance standpoint, as you're considering critical workloads, obviously performance is of the utmost concern. And knowing the, the drive type and the, knowing the, the EBS volume types, one of the things we ran into was in some cases they had provisioned um, the wrong type of storage and we were getting some varying levels of performance. Um, so it's always important to understand precisely what, that, um, uh, what those uh, devices are. And some of the things you can do with our technologies actually give you a little bit more uh, visibility into the storage and how it's consumed. Um, different layouts of the storage, right? Uh, comparing the idea of you know, striping storage across different um, EBS volumes, using larger EBS volumes with guaranteed performance. All these things are, need to take, take into consideration as you are considering, again, those tier one applications. One of the things that we found, though, that was most critical in terms of our, um, our ability to be successful with this customer was that the network connectivity that, between availability zones, the idea that uh, subnets, they aren't stretched between AZs. 
So the idea of being able to route traffic between the availability zones is critical. And host side routing, that was something that we had worked very closely with them and tuning the various network connections to ensure that there was the proper um, transfer of data. As you're gonna see later on, one of the things that's critical to the success of this project was our ability to overcome that shared storage gap. And that network communication between those nodes was uh, one of the things that uh, was um, sort of the driving factor behind that. In terms of the architecture for, the, um, uh, for this particular uh, application, you're gonna see that this is a, um, uh, an example, uh, and it could be applicable to pretty much any workload. It's not just Oracle, it just it's happened to be in this case. Um, you've got in the, first, uh, the second phase, the first phase of this being the, the proof of concept, um, you have a situation where we have two availability zones, you have a node, uh, primary node and secondary node, where the storage is mirrored over what we call our cluster file system. So we're gonna talk a little bit about what that means here in a moment. Um, but the idea is that we overcome that ability of sharing storage and EBS storage across, uh, across the uh, cluster. So what you have is the ability for an application to float uh, between either one of those nodes utilizing the same file system, right? We actually mirror between those, uh, those availability zones. The, um, and the, the, the extension of this, of course, being that with the, the phase three of this will be to add replication in so that you can have um, recovery to another region altogether. Now, I can't, I can't emphasize enough that while, yes, this was an Oracle example with this particular customer, uh, this would work for pretty much any workload. Any, and that, that's saying for Linux. If your workload is on Windows, it looks a little bit different, uh, but essentially the same, uh, same result is there. Um, so as you are considering those uh, tier one applications, don't let that storage limitation be an um, uh, inhi inhibitor. Cool. All right. So what I want to do now is talk a little about the technology that went into us being able to do this for this particular customer. Um, and specifically, it's around um, what we call InfoScale or InfoScale Enterprise. And as I mentioned before, that, that technology is a suite of, of solutions that encompasses our Veritas Volume Manager, Veritas File System, Veritas Cluster Server. And that's something that's been in the market for nearly 30 years or more uh, in terms of uh, the, the, uh, from a software-defined storage and, and high availability perspective. So we've been protecting mission-critical applications you know, across any number of different uh, uh, industries and verticals for a number of years. In terms of where we see the focus for InfoScale, and as you consider, you know, again, answering that question I said before about what does the cloud mean for me, is it uh, about uh, disaster recovery? Is it about high availability? Is it about storage optimization? Is it about um, supplemental platforms? Um, the things to consider is where we focus in on is first and foremost around storage efficiency, accelerating performance. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about exactly some of the features within this suite that help this customer address some of those performance challenges, making sure that they can optimize that, uh, that, that uh, uh, environment. From a downtime perspective, right, application resilience, the, the key here is that there are a number of solutions in the market that look at the, the infrastructure, they look at virtual machines, they look at uh, any number of different sort of high level perspectives. We're focused in on the application, right? We're always looking at that individual workload that's critical to, the, to your business. So whether again, it's whether it's an Oracle database or an SAP environment or a SQL environment or, or whichever, um, that's really where the focus is. And then the last piece being around agility. As I mentioned before, so many of the customers I've spoken to over the years have sort of been struggling with this idea of adopting the cloud because they don't know how to get the, over that first step, right? I was like, I've got a, a Solaris environment and I would love to be able to move that into the public cloud, but how do I do that, 
Do you guys think there's a way you can take a Solaris environment today and move it directly into AWS? How many, by a show of hands, how many people here think, and it's, a, it's obviously a loaded question, think you can take an Oracle database running on a Solaris environment and replicate it directly into EC2, converting the database, all done automatically? Nobody. Well, okay. He doesn't count, he's a product manager. Uh, well, spoiler alert, yes there is. And we're gonna show you exactly how you can do that with, with Veritas and with InfoScale. All right, so in terms of the technology at a glance, uh, InfoScale, again, platform agnostic. So whether the workload is running on Linux, Windows, Unix, that's a, a um, basically we've cut our teeth on all of the major players in that space. From a storage standpoint, again, as I mentioned before, one of those challenges that we're trying to overcome with, with regard to this technology, or specifically with regard to uh, the AWS availability zones, is this idea that we can take local storage and represent it as shared storage, right? So we can take a local device that exists on an EBS volume or uh, a local drive on a, on a physical box sitting in your data center, and we can treat that as a shared resource. So I like to say you can take little puddles of storage and you can create pools of capacity, right? And they all are available across the cluster. You can scale with, with, uh, with ease in terms of adding in capacity or adding in compute. And we're gonna talk about how that technology works. Okay. Um, from an availability uh, standpoint, one of the really great things that we, we offer is a catalog of agents that automatically give you the ability to monitor and protect and provide resiliency for all of the most critical enterprise applications in the market. So you don't have to write custom scripts, you don't have to you know, guess exactly what it is you're looking at. So whether it's, an, again, Oracle database, an SAP environment, a DB2 environment, a SQL environment, whatever it may be, um, we have agents that actually go out and monitor those and protect all those for you. Um, and really cool thing about it is if you are interested to know more about this and how that piece works, we actually have a live functioning demo of this set up in our, in our booth in the Expo Hall. And then lastly, as I mentioned before, this idea of disaster recovery being not just a, uh, a consideration from so physical to physical, but really going from any combination of physical to virtual, virtual to virtual, virtual to cloud, you know, region to region, giving yourself really the luxury to decide where you want your disaster recovery location to be. And you can, you can consolidate, you can create different um, sort of levels of efficiency. So if you've got a, say, a physical cluster on-prem today, and you wanted to be able to replicate that AWS, great. You can do that, and you can actually have a smaller footprint in AWS than you would on-prem, giving you the ability to really right-size your IT, right? So you don't have to have, everything doesn't have to be one for one. You can create, uh, again, more custom, uh, bespoke configurations. So in terms of specifically as we talk about InfoScale in the cloud, I do wanna talk a little bit about, I would say, those points that drove the, the, again, for this particular customer, that drove this adoption. And the first is going to be around storage reliability and performance. So as you relinquish control of the infrastructure, right, one of the things you cannot you know, discount is your applications, those critical workloads, the ones that are in the critical path of your business, right, the ones that either help you stay competitive in your market, or the ones that you have obligations to your customers on. You have to be able to maintain performance. Now, there is an incredible amount of, uh, of technology that goes into AWS in terms of scale and, and performance, 
but it's, of a, it's at a granularity that's one step above the application. Right? We're looking at the individual app. We want to understand at that low level how well that application is performing and be able to address you know, the, 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 the storage capacity as well as performance maybe in two different conversations. Oh, yeah, go back. The second piece, again, is the idea of scale, right? Looking at that application, be able to grow it as you, you determine, meaning you can add compute when you need to add compute, or you can add capacity when you can add capacity. Doing that as well, again, uh, across the, the, the different um, uh, boundaries within, the, within AWS. We talked about high availability of those enterprise applications. Um, and then, of course, the idea that you can deploy this solution, right? We have the, the CFTs, and we are in the marketplace. So to be able to simplify that deployment. So addressing those challenges in terms of performance, scale, resiliency, but also making sure that the operational side of it isn't so cumbersome that it all sounds well and good, but if I have to have you know, full-time engineers just to be able to configure this, it seems a little bit, um, uh, it, it doesn't really give me that, uh, that warm and fuzzy. All right, so let's go into the technology that we've, uh, we were able to achieve here or that we utilized in order to achieve these, uh, these outcomes with a customer. And the first is around this concept that we call flexible storage sharing. And this is all derived from, again, our Veritas Volume Manager, something that's been in the market since, honestly, since like 1989. <laughs> you know, it was the, really the, the origins of software-defined storage, right? And you might think, wow, that, that technology, that was like, we used to put that on all sunboxes back in the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. When in reality, the, its relevancy today is actually more so than it's ever been because this idea of software defined being so pervasive, and, right? And that's really in our, it's in our DNA. So this idea of flexible storage sharing is one where you can look at a traditional storage model and you say, okay, I've got my SAN attached storage, uh, I've got my switches, I've got uh, this uh, you know, fiber attached disk, and that's all well and good, but there's really no such thing as a storage array in the cloud necessarily. So how do I then achieve this same sort of capability the same efficiencies that I have that, that may be running a critical database on this in the public cloud, in AWS. Well, what we want to be able to do is actually replace those disks with local attached devices. So now what you have are local SSD, local flash, any, any type of storage really for that matter, that all are going to be resident on those boxes, whether it's a physical box on-prem or an EC2 instance. And over an interconnect that's, that we set up, really it's a heartbeat, right, for our clusters, you actually can mirror that data. So imagine if you would, you're looking at a, a two-node cluster in this particular example. What you have is essentially storage that is local to that box, as well as storage that's local to another box in the same cluster, which is available to it. And because it's closer to the CPU, because it's, uh, there's no, um, the, the bandwidth and latency is less, you actually, in, in many cases, are gonna get better performance out of this model than you would in a shared storage. Uh, consideration. So you're going to be able to achieve linear scale. You can add nodes for compute, so you actually can decouple the conversation of capacity and performance. So that was one thing that this customer was very keen on, was the idea that, like, I don't just want to have to add more boxes with more storage, uh, because how many copies of your data do you really need? Because in actuality, what you have here, that is three copies of the data. So if you have a very large database, I mean, that could be prohibitive. But you don't need to do that to add scale for performance. You can add compute nodes that just don't only have local storage to it for, for the operating system. And they can use the storage that's elsewhere in the environment. So if you, you don't have to think of it in terms of the, the cost being so um, prohibitive. Again, that's independently of one another. 
So you can have sort of like a hub and spoke model where you can consider storage and compute as two you know, very critical uh, considerations or con uh, critical elements to that, uh, that uh, environment, but you don't have to have them be you know, inextricably linked between one another. And then, we, of course, you know, everybody's got their own dashboard for monitoring all this and being able to visualize this both on-prem as well as uh, uh, in AWS. So what you get from all this is this idea of linear scale, sort of elasticity for your applications, um, where you now have both Flash, right, that ephemeral instant storage, that's in AWS. You can have IO2, EBS storage. You can have GP storage. You can have all, all, all the flavors and all the different uh, uh, types of storage that AWS offers um, and be able to apply those in the appropriate way and grow those applications and scale out those applications in accordance with the demands that you have for those environments. So what was something that was easily done on-prem, right, now can be reproduced in the cloud with the same kind of ease. And in reality, the growth and the expansion of these types of clusters are, is a significantly faster in the cloud than it would be on-prem, um, but you don't have to sacrifice any of those, again, those performance uh, metrics. Cool, all right. Lots of animations. Too many animations. Too many clicks. So in terms of where we see the, the performance and how we're able to capture it, um, and all the validation, all the testing, all the, 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 the specs that we've done, um, we've seen in this particular configuration, this happens to be a D2, eight extra large. Uh, we've seen with one node, two node, four nodes. As you add nodes, you're able to increase the capacity. Here, double it. So you know that as you add nodes that you can get that response, you can get that kind of performance. Um, and this is testing that you can, you can easily reproduce, right? This, is, this isn't you know, exotic, this isn't magic, right? This is something that we try to, try to achieve um, in context where customers can see this and users can see this and say, yep, that absolutely applies to my environment. That's something that I can uh, um, take advantage of. Cool, all right. Let's talk a little bit about cloud as a DR target, because as I mentioned before in, the, in that Rubrics Cube slide, um, what if cloud for me is not necessarily about the, uh, the scale of those applications, but rather just having a DR target, something where I don't have to maintain that infrastructure. So one of the great things about InfoScale is that not only are you afforded the ability to provide resiliency for those critical workloads, but also you're able to replicate. You're able to take those applications and provide that um, pathway from on-prem into AWS. And the great thing about this use case is that all the things that you do to achieve this kind of scale, you actually get two things with this, or with this, this kind of capability. You get two things with this. You get not only the disaster recovery element of it, but you also get that migration piece, right? And that was what was one of the things that was, was sort of the, uh, the genesis for a lot of what this, this customer I worked with you know, saw this. They're like, hey, we, we've got this on-premises on, on footprint. We want to be able to move this stuff into the public cloud. We want to be able to take and, and drive that adoption. Well, that's the great thing about it is that same technology that you're accustomed to using in the physical world now can be applicable in the, in the, in the cloud world. So whether it's replication or what we call, we call uh, disaster recovery or DR failover or migration, the same capabilities afforded you. Now, this might mean not just going from on-prem to the cloud, this might be going from region to region. Same technology, same solution. You can take and use the same, same functions, same capabilities, and now give yourself that sort of, uh, the highest level of protection across regions. You know, I, don't, I might get in trouble for saying this, but there are outages in the cloud. And I don't think anybody is going to deny that. 
Um, and when we start talking about moving those critical workloads, you, you have to take that into account. You have to be um, honest with yourself about you know, what is going to be the, the levels of resiliency I can, I can apply to these environments. So whether it's protecting it within the context of a single region across availability zones or across regions altogether, same footprint, same technology, same functionality. You can just extend it to include those pieces. And it's all building blocks, right? So you can start small and, and, and scale out or build out as you see fit. Cool. All right. So we've talked about the idea of scale of the application. We've talked about this idea of, of disaster recovery and what it can afford you. I want to talk a little bit now uh, about specifically around performance of the application. Because again, one of the, 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 the critical discussion points we had with this customer was this idea that if I move this application into the public cloud, if I'm relinquishing control of the infrastructure, I don't have visibility into it. I don't necessarily know behind the scenes exactly how well everything is going to be operating. I have to make the assumption that when I, when I apply whatever, you know, uh, when I configure whatever storage resource or I, I uh, allocate whatever volumes that I'm going to get the kind of performance that I need. But at the same time, I want to be able to do it efficiently. I don't want to have to, if I have got a very large data set, but maybe it's taking the 80-20 rule, only 20% of it is really needs to be most active. Do I need to put my entire data set on the most expensive tier of storage? No, you don't. With this concept we call Smart I.O., we actually can apply sort of an, what we call an intelligent caching mechanism. This notion that you can take those bits and if it's something as um, uh, structured as a relational database, um, you actually can, at the granularity of a table space, you can cache those into local flash or PCI or SSD um, that will give you that very granular performance and benefit. And where this is applicable in the public cloud is that with any of the you know, IO optimized instances, what you're going to get is a chunk of NVMe storage. You're going to get instant storage attached to your EC2 instance. You ever look at the uh, devices and you're going to see NVMe1 or whatever the, the name of it is? That's a, that is a, uh, a chunk of extremely fast, very efficient storage. But because it's ephemeral, if you ever were to um, power off of that instance, you would lose all the data in there. It sustains itself over reboots, but it doesn't uh, sustain itself over, over power out if you power it off. So it's a perfect target for this kind of use case, where now you can take those heavy read, um, read operations, you can actually pin these, these, work, these data sets directly into that uh, instant storage and give yourself the most um, optimized uh, response uh, to those, again, those critical facets or those critical elements within that data set. It's not the entire data set. It's something that it's only a portion of it. And you have to ask, sort of ask yourself, okay, well, which portion? It's going to be the one that's most active, right? And we actually have tools that are going to give you the ability to, to analyze that data set and from there give you the, the best configuration for that. Um, it's a technology that we call Smart Assist, uh, which is actually in the next slide. <laughs> uh, this is just a, an example of where we see the, the throughput. Um, again, cost for IOPS in comparison to the, the different um, uh, configurations for that uh, NVMe storage. So you have to uh, sort of balance that out uh, exactly, you know, the size of that, uh, that instant storage, what that workload is going to be, 
um, and then from there can gauge what that uh, particular performance benefit would be. And as I said before, with a uh, tool that we call Smart Assist, what you can now do is an analysis of your workload. So that's what we did with this customer. We went through and they had, um, they had Smart Assist and they ran it on-prem first because they wanted to understand really what was some of the results. Um, and then from there, during the course of the, the POC, um, wanted to apply that into the public cloud as well. Uh, and as part of the phase three configuration is when this will get implemented uh, for, for that particular customer. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful tool. It's not something where you have to do anything to recalibrate your application. You don't, the application doesn't even know that you're using it. Uh, but it just gives you, again, the ability to take full advantage of all the resources that you get inside of AWS. Again, those eph ephemeral devices, um, but at the same time, using them what they're most intended for, right? Temporary uh, ephemeral space. All right, so we've talked about this idea of scale. We've talked about this concept of, of um, performance acceleration in the cloud. We've talked about disaster recovery to the cloud. We've taken into consideration right, all of the different um, um, uh, use cases, as we've mentioned before. But one of the use cases that we talked about was this idea of what if the cloud was a storage target? Right? What if disaster recovery isn't the critical element? Or for that matter, what if just storage utilization in the cloud is of of, of most concern for me. Well, one of the things that we've been able to achieve, again, with, with, with InfoScale, is this idea of being able to tier data both within the cloud, utilizing different storage tiers, as well as to the cloud from on-prem. So this customer looked at this and said, okay, so now I can take those remaining workloads that aren't gonna move to the cloud, and I can actually tier off into S3 data based on a policy that I set, whether it's creation date, file type, modified time, whatever it may be, and it's completely transparent to the application. So if I've got something that it's more of an archival use case, I can go ahead and do that. I can sort of demote that storage. So this idea is that you can actually take a cloud bucket, an S3 bucket, and attach that to a POSIX compliant file system and transparently move that data between those different, uh, different locations. And this works fantastically for, again, migrating bits into the public cloud transparently so that, again, the application doesn't have to be uh, made aware of what's going on. Um, but it also works extremely well for the opposite direction. If you've got something in the public cloud and you want to be able to move it from, say, a GP2 storage into IO1 type storage, or if it's an IO1 and I want to move it down to GP2 because it hasn't been accessed in the last 45 days, you can do that as well. So you can create much more efficient utilization of those resources. Again, right-sizing how you configure those instances, specifically tailored for that, that workload. So giving you the, the ability to move those bits, again, from either on-prem into the cloud or adjust where they're located and relocate them, again, non-disruptively while you're in the cloud. Maximizing the, 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 the investment you make in those resources and giving you that, um, really, uh, the ability to drive home the performance as well as you know, long-term retention for, uh, for many of those uh, different applications. Cool. All right. So that's the, the sort of the underlying architecture, right? That's the, the technology that has really been uh, feeding into the, the, this particular use case for this customer. But what's beyond that, however, is that 
One of the things that you can do on-prem today, again, with our, our, our technology, is as I mentioned before, there's a number of agents that monitor and, and maintain the awareness of all the different, app, different services and resources that you're protecting. And this works both in a, as a way to organize and orchestrate the recovery of those different applications, but also give you the, um, the sort of the lowest levels of visibility and awareness and confidence that uh, you're going to be able to protect those applications. And again, as we're talking about those critical ones, those tier one applications, this stuff is, is almost table stakes for the most part. So what we've done is, in, in again, as part of this effort with this particular customer, was uh, enable a number of different agents that are specific to the cloud. So one of the things now, um, this idea that we talk about, this notion of global clustering, the idea that you can take an, uh, a cluster that's uh, sitting in the physical data center and you want to be able to replicate that and fail over your application into the cloud. There's a number of things that you have to take into account in terms of networking within AWS. For example, um, an IP address in AWS. If you log on to an instance running in, in EC2 and you just simply plumb up an interface and you add an IP to it, that's not enough. That's not going to give you connectivity to that instance. You have to be able to then apply that secondary private IP or elastic IP or overlay IP as part of the, uh, that sequence, part of that process. And, and doing so, uh, we realized that just managing that individual IP address is not enough. We have to be able to extend that even further. So we've introduced a new agent type um, that will actually take care of that process for you. The whole point being is that when you're accustomed to doing something in the physical world, and you want to adopt the cloud, we want to create as uh, a clean a pathway to, uh, to utilizing those, that, uh, those resources and have the, the ramp up or the learning curve be as, as low as possible. So in order to achieve that, we've introduced this concept of an AWS IP agent. And what this customer is able to do is actually deploy this uh, as a means to configure those IPs that switch when they fail over between availability zones. Think about it. You've got a subnet running on AZ1, you have an application running on AZ1, you want to fail that over to AZ2, that's an entirely different subnet. We have to be able to change and modify that. So we have to not only change the IP address, we have to also update any DNS changes as well. Now this is something that in the physical world was very common, right? It's very, uh, very typical. But in, in, the, in the cloud context, we have to take advantage of some of the different uh, services that are afforded you. So in this particular case, adding in the different uh, IP addresses, uh, specifically on failover, involves not just being able to assign it at the host, but also communicate over an IAM role to the EC2 instance and actually update and change all those configurations. So we actually communicate directly with, uh, with that console, giving you the ability to affect those, uh, those updates. Now, as I said before, um, this, is, this is a particular uh, configuration. This is just what, a, uh, what the, the cluster UI would look like uh, with this um, uh, particular agent. But as I said before, it's not just the IP address, right? There's this idea that we also want, oh, uh, I didn't uh, go back to it. Uh, we also want to be able to update the uh, DNS. So we not only have an agent for the IP address, we also have a Route 53 agent as well. And this is also something that was important for this customer, being able to ensure that on that failover that that DNS entry gets updated accordingly. And that can work across VPCs, right? If you have VPC peering configured, you can have that, um, that, uh, that private hosted DNS zone. You can update that accordingly and failover, all of which is automated and orchestrated through the same, same UI, same configuration that is protecting the application. So the use cases that we've talked about have been very specifically around failing over between availability zones and failing over between regions. 
Um, but this customer also is interested in how is it then we can achieve recovery within a single availability zone. Now, an enterprise block storage volume cannot be mapped to more than one host at a time. So you cannot create shared storage with an EBS volume. So how is it then do you create an application? I'm asking you, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, well, I want to see if anybody has an answer to this. How is it that you can create an application that fails over within an availability zone if it's got to use that same EBS volume? How would you do it? Any takers? Even manually, how would you do it? Nobody? All right. Everybody just wants to hurry up and get to the happy hour at 4 o'clock, right? I do too. Uh, the idea is that we, in the same vein that we were able to create agents that look at the IP addresses, that look at the Route 53, we've created storage agents that specifically look at EBS volumes. So now what you can configure is an application in, within a single availability zone that looks at an EBS volume, and the failover sequence now takes into account the fact that I have to detach an EBS volume from a particular node and then attach it to another node as part of that failover sequence. So in you know, HA101, you're looking at an application, it's dependent on some mount points, dependent on some virtual IPs, dependent on some you know, volumes, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, what we've done is added in another agent that would exist at the bottom of that dependency, which then, again, communicates over that same IAM role, that same profile that you can assign to the cluster, that uses the AWS CLI to actually detach and attach the, those EBS volumes. So now you can configure that failover that you were accustomed to doing on-prem, and you can do it within the context of a single availability zone. Right? Maybe it's not a, the most critical application. Maybe it's a tier two or tier three app that you just want to have HA for. You don't need to worry about having it across the disease. You just want to be able to do it in a single availability zone. You're able to do that now as well. So in this particular configuration, you can see here, this is uh, an example of what that uh, um, agent would look like in the EBS volume. We give it the volume ID. Uh, the path to the AWS CLI, and again, once that profile is set up, that's all you need to do. And it is included in that same dependency map. So you can see at the bottom, now the last thing that it does is it's actually offline that enterprise block volume. So again, as I said before, this customer is looking at a number of different scenarios, right? Being able to migrate bits into the public cloud, being able to take advantage of uh, the, the, the technology as it, once it's there, being able to overcome some of the storage challenges that are um, uh, evident with uh, EBS volumes and availability zones, but also create more, I would say, modest configurations as well for some of those tier two and tier three applications, and able to achieve, uh, do so again with, uh, with this particular agent. All right, so do a little check, we're good. All right, so now that we've talked about a number of the different use cases, right? we've talked about storage optimization, right? tiering to the cloud, we've talked about the idea of how do you create HA and resilient applications in the cloud, uh, how do you optimize performance for those applications in the cloud, let's talk about those migrations. And as I said before, it doesn't seem like anybody believed me when I said you can migrate an Oracle database from on-prem physical Solaris directly into EC2. Um, this is not, uh, this is not uh, any sort of uh, magical thing. This is absolutely a technology that has actually been embedded with our solution for the better part of 15 years. So since 2004, 2005, I don't recall exactly, we've had the ability to take a file system and actually move it from one Endian flavor to another Endian flavor. Big Endian, little Endian, right? So if you're running something on Solaris today, using our file system, you can go ahead and just deport that and import that onto to Linux. 
But where that comes into play now is that you can also replicate that data. It's not just taking that storage and decoupling it and moving it. You actually can replicate it to another target altogether. And what we have is this ability where you now have a physical cluster running, say, in your data center. You have the storage configured. Everything's been running just fine. Inside of a hyper-converged or, or public cloud, whichever it may be, uh, you know, the virtual environment or cloud environment, AWS, you now can on, really on the fly configure all the storage resources, all the cluster resources, configure the replication, and then actually test the failover to rehearse it to ensure that it's actually going to perform in accordance with what your expectations are. So you don't have to commit the change right away. So you set, these, set this uh, process up, you replicate the data directly into AWS, and when you are ready, you can click the button to commit the change. But if you want to, again, rehearsing it, and I would highly recommend doing that first, uh, you're able to do that as well to test out the, the effectiveness. And this works at a database level. You could do this with an Oracle database. The only consideration is transportable table spaces. If that's enabled, then absolutely, you can replicate this from big Indian on Solaris to little Indian running EC2 inside of AWS. And we have a, we have a wizard that builds this whole configuration for you, right? So you don't have to be so intimately familiar with the specifics of the environment as much as you just know what the target AWS environment is, what the EBS volumes are going to be, what the, you know, what the console and the authorization and, and authentication. Uh, and then ultimately this gives you that sort of that last sort of hurdle that so many customers over the years I've spoken to about in terms of adopting that full, full complement of AWS services, right? Taking what was in my physical world at the application level, right? We're not talking about taking a Solaris environment and reproducing that Solaris environment in the cloud. We're talking about taking the application that's resident in that Solaris environment and moving that into the, into the public cloud, right? Because then you can sort of just sort of jettison the, the Solaris environment altogether or Unix environment, right? And there's still a healthy complement of Unix in, uh, in the data center today. Granted, it's not nearly as, as extensive as it once was, um, but it's still there. And in many cases, in my experience, it's because the, there isn't an awareness that you can do this or you can take advantage of these kinds of technology, these kinds of options. So at the end of the day, you then, once you commit it, it actually will offline the application on that uh, primary site and then run the migration and bring your application online. All right, so let's talk a little bit about some best practices and some of the resources that are available to you if you are considering this and if this is something that after listening to this, you're like, you know, maybe, maybe my situation isn't as dire as it once was or I, the, the task isn't as daunting. So in terms of what the environment would look like, again, these are EC2 IIS, infrastructure as a service approach, right? We're not talking about RDS, we're not talking about database services, but rather running your own instance of Linux, running your own instance of your database. Um, the idea is that you can stripe across different tiers of storage. You can stripe across different uh, devices to get aggregate throughput, to get aggregate performance. Um, whether it's deciding if you want one large EBS volume that you then, you, you decide how many IOPS that particular get, or be able to stripe it across more uh, individual, smaller EBS volumes can all play a significant role in how well your application performs. And there's no rule of thumb, there's no silver bullet, you're gonna have to try different, different approaches, um, which depending on the workload. Um, you have to, you wanna, and I know this seems like, uh, sort of like a, 
palm meet forehead statement, but you want to adequately size your environment. One of the things that we found initially with this deployment was that we were up against not just limitations in terms of the performance, but there is peaks in terms of throughput from a network standpoint that are, that are associated with different classes of EC2 instances. And, and part of what we had ended up having to do was um, uh, rebuild some of the environment on more um, robust EC2 instances, and that solved a lot of the issues. They had thought they had sized it appropriately, but at the end of the day, it just didn't meet the demands that they want. Um, so I can't, I can't emphasize enough, you know, pad the, the, the environment, give yourself a lot of breathing room. Um, from a heartbeat standpoint, one of the things that, um, that we support, if you do consider this, is that because there's no layer two in, in, inside of AWS, all of the heartbeat is, is over UDP, which gives us that ability to route that traffic between those different availability zones, right? So you have to spend a, really a lot of time focusing on what that, uh, what that is. And to be honest with you, I learned quite a bit. I, I always thought cider was something you drank. I had no idea that that was a networking, a networking piece. I thought it was, I thought it was. But learning all about cider, cider addressing and subnet masks and all of that, there was quite, I, I thought I knew about networking and I realized how little I knew. Um, we have this concept of coordination point services. A lot of times what's, what's critical for, for HA configurations is this idea of fencing, this idea of IO fencing. You guys probably have heard that term before. One of the things that's not afforded to you inside of the uh, AWS is this idea of SCSI 3 storage, compliant storage. So while we can't provide that level of IO fencing, we can provide network-based arbitration. So if you have a, a split brain between availability zones, imagine sticking a, a, an arbitration point or coordination point in a third region, right? This particular customer wanted uh, that uh, arbitration point to be on-prem. So they have a, a VPN connection from their on-premises on data center into AWS, and that's where one of their uh, um, coordination points are. Um, ELBs, load balancers, of course, that's uh, an important consideration, right? Being able to uh, address how those applications are failing over and being able to non-disruptively or transparently be able to reattach to those, uh, uh, those workloads as they, as they fail over between availability zones or even, even regions altogether. Uh, again, as I mentioned before, routing tables, host-based routing is an important one. We start talking about going traffic, uh, mirroring traffic and mirroring data uh, between uh, nodes in different availability zones. Uh, CFTs, right? So we are in the marketplace, so you can utilize our CloudFormation templates that help build a lot of this. Um, we have an AMI, but at the same time, you also can build your own, and we have deployment guides on how best to, to configure this um, that, would, that would fit your, uh, fit your configuration. What we learned quite a bit throughout the process of this, of this, with this customer and this project, we found that while it's all well and good to um, write a recipe and hand that off to someone and say, hey, here are the ingredients, go ahead and bake, bake this meal or make this meal in someone else's kitchen, there's always, like anybody who does any cooking, there's always different spices you add, and there's always little variations, and I might cook this a little longer, I might add a little tweak here or a pinch of this. We found that um, it's all well and good, but there's, there's definitely a need to be adaptable to the different uh, environments and different uh, customer examples and, and use cases. Um, but if you wanted just something that's rapid, something that uh, can sort of um, get you deployed very quickly, the CFTs are there for you. 
And finally, we've got a number of documents and assets um, that uh, we've written uh, to help to sort of bring some of the um, clarity to exactly how, this how these environments could, could look like, whether it's about um, configuring it for specifically for Oracle or for that matter, understanding how the environment would work um, from a storage optimization standpoint or simply what the configuration would look like from an HADR standpoint. Um, all of that um, is available to you, um, all from all on, uh, on Veritas.com. Um, and as I mentioned before, right, we're in the marketplace, right? It's a, a, a bring your own license approach. So you can uh, download an AMI that has the bits built in. Um, it gives you, this is what the configuration would look like. We are gonna be refreshing this soon. This is one rev back from our current release. Um, I don't have a, an ETA on that, but uh, that should hopefully be in the, in the next couple of months. We'll have that uh, up, on the, uh, up on the marketplace updated for you. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, finally what, we, what we've covered here. Now, I just do a, a point of, uh, uh, just a point of order. I did have a really funny picture up there of uh, the farmer's insurance guy saying, yep, we cover that. The copyright people told me I couldn't put that in there because I, didn't, I wasn't authorized to, to put that in there. So no, no, no fun graphics today. Uh, so, yeah, so high availability for tier one applications, right? That's really been the focus here, understanding that as you move those critical workloads, you do not have to sacrifice any of the resiliency you were grown accustomed to when you're on-premises. On uh, performance acceleration, right? Making sure that that, that application level, the, the granularity of the app performs and scales with, in accordance with uh, the demands, um, and you can adjust that accordingly. Uh, disaster recovery from on-premises to the public cloud, right? And going from physical into the cloud, going from virtual into the cloud. Right, being able to handle all those different uh, pathways. Uh, stretch clusters, right? That's really what a availability zone to an availability zone cluster would look like. That is a metro cluster, stretch cluster. You guys probably heard those terms before. It's the same concept. The only difference here now is it's all contained within one region inside of AWS. Uh, and of course, DR between cloud regions, right? Giving you that, uh, the ability to um, egress your application from one region to another as long as that uh, VPC peering is enabled. Uh, tiering between on-premises and EBS storage and S3 buckets, right? Non-disruptively or transparently, I should say, being able to move bits of data from your um, uh, on-premises data sets, uh, on-premises volumes into, into AWS, if that is the use case for you for the cloud, right? If that's the Rubik's Cube problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, DR and or migrations, right? If you can achieve disaster recovery to the cloud, you have yourself a migration to the cloud. It's the exact same effort. The difference is, is disaster recovery, it's a round trip ticket. A migration, it's a one way ticket, right? You're moving that data there and once it's there, you've settled and you're good to go. Disaster recovery, it's a round trip ticket. So you move those bits there and just as easily say, you know what, come right back. Right? And of course that's with a migration, it's because you're doing a conversion, right? You're taking something that was in a, a physical Solaris world and moving it into EC2. But if it's disaster recovery, it's Linux on-prem and it's Linux in the cloud, you can go back and forth. And I encourage you guys to come to the booth. We've got this all set up for you to show you and you can uh, test it out and see exactly how it's, it's configured and play around. Uh, as I said before, the wizard-driven migrations, I don't have a physical Solaris box to be able to show you that. I wish I did. But um, we do have recordings of it if you guys are interested in seeing that. Uh, but again, gives you that ability to automate the configuration, builds out all the dependencies, builds out the configuration, and then builds out the replication piece of it as well. So it gets, sort of accelerates that adoption for you. Um, so at the end of the day, right, we do support a configuration or two. So with that, I want to open it to questions from you guys. Appreciate you letting me bend your ear for about an hour. Oh, I've got a question from there. Yeah. Uh, there's a microphone. I don't know if you want to step up to the mic. Yeah. 
Uh, thanks. Uh, good presentation. Thanks. Uh, can you talk about Oracle licensing and the considerations, uh, if any? <laughs> all right. So anybody from Oracle here? That doesn't matter. Uh, all right. Full disclosure here, guys. Oracle, they have a very, very specific statements around how you license their database for two things. One, HA failover, and two, disaster recovery. HA failover, you get 10 calendar days out of the year to fail over your application to another node and you do not have to pay for a license. So if you've got a two node cluster and you run all your databases on one node, you only have to pay, you can fail it over the other node 10 days out of the calendar year for testing. Disaster recovery, however, is different. Disaster recovery is you actually have to license the secondary site. And that's whether you're using our replication, whether you're using hardware-based replication, or even using Oracle Data Guard. You have to license the DR site. So Putting something in the public cloud does not change those licensing conditions. And that's Oracle for you. That's their statements, and I'm just reading it verbatim from their, from their, their, their policy. So hopefully that is your question. Cool. Any other questions? Do you guys think about this and say, you know, maybe I have a tier one application now that maybe I actually do have a, a pathway to the cloud for it. I'm not as concerned because I have options afforded to me. Yeah, maybe. I hope so. All right. Well, again, I can't thank you guys enough. As I said at the beginning, this is my first reInvent conference. I'm really excited to be here. Hopefully, you guys get uh, some, some great opportunity to learn some stuff this week. The session right after this one is some colleagues of mine. We're going to be talking about uh, net backup and uh, two, uh, two customers that were able to uh, join us. I wish I could have had my customer here this week. They weren't able to attend, and, and it was, unfortunately, it was a last-minute sort of uh, reshuffling of some of the slides, but um, I encourage you guys to, to stick around for that as well. And thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the conference.